I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss uh, a fascinating uh, constitutional question, namely, is President Obama redefining the Constitution by limiting congressional input into military actions against the terror organization ISIL. Uh, President Obama has made his case for acting against the terrorist group, but for the past week, experts have been debating whether the president's actions and their apparent conflict with a law that requires him to ask for direct congressional permission before a prolonged military action. Uh, President Obama has cited a 2001 congressional authorization to attack al-Qaeda and its related forces as authorization, a move that puzzled many observers since al-Qaeda and ISIL forces are currently fighting each other. Joining us to look over past conflicts about the war powers resolution and the current situation involving President Obama and Congress are two of the leading experts on executive power in times of war. Ilya Soman is professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. He has served as editor of the Supreme Court Economic Reviews and is a frequent contributor to the popular Bullock Conspiracy blog. John Yu is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Professor Yu has written frequently about the War Powers Resolution and has served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, gentlemen, welcome, and let's jump right in. Ilya, can you please explain to our listeners what the War Powers Resolution is, how it came to be created in the aftermath of the Vietnam War? So during and immediately after the Vietnam War, there was a perception that the president had dragged the country in a military intervention that was unwise and that he had done so without sufficient congressional input. So Congress enacted the War Powers Act of 1973, which states that if the president sends U.S. troops into, quote, a situation of hostilities abroad, uh, then he has to either get congressional approval within 60 days or he must withdraw the troops uh, after the 60 days are over and he would then have an additional 30 days to do the withdrawal. John, do you agree with this description of the War Powers Act, and can you explain why every president since Richard Nixon has ignored its provisions or tried to avoid giving the resolution constitutional legitimacy? Yes, and also let me uh, thank you and the NCC uh, for inviting me to appear here, and uh, it's great to be on with Ilya, a friend that I've known for a long time, even though from time to time, like today, he's mistaken. But I also like, well, he will be mistaken. He's not mistaken yet. <laughs> Um, and it's great to see what good job you're doing, Jeff, at the center. I'm a Philadelphian, and I really want to see the place succeed under your leadership. So at first, I think uh, I think Ilya's uh, right in his description. I think the act, however, is unconstitutional. It's passed over President Nixon's veto, and every president since has either said it was unconstitutional or acted in violation of its terms. And the reason why is because Presidents have long claimed the authority uh, as commander-in-chief and chief executive under the Constitution uh, to use force to protect the United States' national security. And if that is part of the president's constitutional powers, then Congress can't limit it simply by passing a law saying you only get 60 days or you only get 90 days. That doesn't mean Congress can, can't check the president, but I don't think they can do it just by passing a law trying to intrude on what would be a valid exercise of the commander-in-chief power. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've been critical of President Obama's uh, stance. Uh, he has sent Congress a series of notifications updating lawmakers on executive actions taken against ISIL. Have these letters served the true spirit and purpose of the War Powers Resolution, or are they an attempt to avoid it? Uh, I think pretty clearly the latter. Uh, the War Powers Resolution doesn't just require notifying Congress, it also requires getting Congress's affirmative consent for the deployment if it lasts more than 60 days, which this one uh, really, if you count back enough, but already has lasted more than 60 days with the airstrikes on ISIS in Iraq. Uh, as to whether this is constitutional or not, I think this is actually one of those times where the text of the Constitution is very clear. Uh, Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Uh, that gives Congress the power to do things like, for instance, uh, limit the use of chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, regulate the treatment of prisoners uh, and other aspects of warfare, uh, and uh, certainly deciding when and where and for how long the troops can fight. That also is a form of government and regulation and therefore falls within the clause. Uh, now, obviously, if Congress had not made uh, an affirmative restriction on what the president can do, then maybe the president would have broader autonomy. Uh, but when Congress has affirmatively acted using its government and regulation power, uh, then uh, we're at the place that is the Supreme Court famously put it in the Youngstown Steel case in 1953, presidential power is at its lowest ebb when what the president is doing is not only not authorized by Congress, but actually going directly against uh, a law that Congress has adopted. John, uh, you has made a provocative claim that the president is acting in Justice Jackson's lowest ebb. That's sort of fighting words in the executive uh, power uh, debate. <laughs> You know, as many of our listeners do, that Justice Jackson identified three categories of congressional power when congressional intent was unclear. Uh, we were in the zone of twilight. But do you agree with Ilya that here the president is acting in the face of explicit congressional opposition? Well, all of that has to be uh, conditioned on the fact that the president's power, constitutional power, is not being taken away. Uh, and this is something even Justice Jackson recognized when he listed his three categories, he said, except in cases where the president has a power. Otherwise, if you just follow those three categories, it means Congress can basically do whatever it wants at any time, regardless of what the president's powers were. Suppose the Congress under passed a law saying no general has to obey a direct order of the president. And you could say, well, that's our use of the power to make, and reg make regulations for the government of the armed forces. This is, in fact, something that Congress tried to do to President Andrew Johnson during the Reconstruction period and tried to impeach him when he refused to obey. But I think on this case, yeah, President Johnson was right in his reading of the Constitution. What if Congress passed a law saying the president can't fire any generals or admirals under his command because we think that's a good power, that's a, that's a regulation for these armed forces too. So there it has to be conditioned. You have to decide first before you even get to these, whether the president and Congress agree with each other, what does the president's power properly include? What does Congress's power properly include? And I don't think if you go back, you think and look at the text of the Constitution, I mean, yes, you could say the power to regulate the armed forces includes the power to limit what the military does with certain kinds of weapons or what kind of tactics and strategies they may fight with. However, the president also has power over tactics and strategies in his commander-in-chief. 
But I don't recall anyone at the time of the framing of the Constitution saying this provision is what allows Congress to limit the president's ability to start hostilities. In fact, the only thing I'm aware of, the only time when there was a really direct discussion of this issue was between Patrick Henry and James Madison and the Virginia Ratifying Convention, probably the most important one in the history of the ratification of the Constitution. And Patrick Henry, who was making many of the accusations today, you hear Rand Paul or Ron Paul at all making against our president, that the president could become tyrannical, monarchical, and so on. And they said this commander-in-chief power is going to run wild. And James Madison, defending it, said, look, in our system, it's like the British system. The power of the sword and the power of the purse are separate, and Congress will always have the power of the purse. To me, that means the people who wrote our Constitution, defended it in public at the time it was ratified, thought the funding power was how Congress would control the executive. Not by passing law saying you have 30 days, you know, stopwatch, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, but saying we don't want your war, we don't want you to engage in adventurism when we don't have to vote any funds for it. And that's what Congress could, could do today with ISIL. They could just say we're not going to fund any of the intervention, any bombing, any, any use of troops or anything when it comes to fighting ISIL in Syria and Iraq. So, Ilya, John has usefully returned us to first principles, and the debate is now joined. He says that if you're right that the president is acting in the face of explicit congressional disapproval, well, then the congressional disapproval is unconstitutional, and he's basically questioning the constitutionality of the War Powers Resolution. What's your response? Yeah, I think it is constitutional. Being the commander-in-chief, does not give you the power to ignore congressional law. It just says that you're the highest ranking general or admiral within the structure of the armed forces that uh, Congress has the power to regulate. So while they may not be able to take away a status as the highest ranking general because that's uh, assigned him by Article 2, that doesn't mean they can't limit the range of orders that he can issue. Uh, as John has said, I'm actually a little surprised that John has taken this position, but he's right about it. John has said that uh, they can limit the tactics that can be used, the weapons that can be used. I fail to see how limiting, how if they can limit the tactics and weapons, why they can't also limit the location uh, where the troops can be used as well. That seemed to me uh, pretty similar. Uh, now, on the question of the uh, sword and the purse, I think it's a little bit ironic that John would quote James Madison in support of his position here because, of course, among the founders, Madison always consistently took the position uh, that the president, in fact, cannot initiate war without congressional authorization. He said that uh, many times. Indeed, even Alexander Hamilton, who otherwise favored broader executive power than Madison did, also said similar things. Uh, it's true that they didn't say that the government regulation clause was limiting the uh, president's power to initiate war, but that's because the president didn't have such a power in the first place. Uh, what the president did have, perhaps, uh, was a power to initiate military hostilities uh, of a lesser scope than war, uh, you know, perhaps a small-scale one-time airstrike like the 1986 airstrike on Libya, for example. Uh, and the War Powers Act, however, does regulate that power that it noticed that restrict sending troops not just into war but into hostilities, which could be a conflict of a smaller scale uh, than a war. Uh, and I think that would be a regulation of uh, the time or the place where troops can be used, and if that power can be used to regulate the types of weapons or the types of tactics, it can be used to regulate the 
uh, time and place as well. Uh, the president, of course, is not without weapons to resist this. Uh, he could, the president can veto congressional restrictions if he wants to, and as a practical matter, such restrictions are unlikely to be imposed. In West, there's a pretty broad consensus in support of them, given that the president has the veto, uh, and given that uh, Congress is unlikely to want to be blamed for undermining national security. Uh, so I think uh, there are a lot of tools that the president has to resist uh, dangerous or harmful congressional regulation of his powers, but the power to define explicit prohibition of Congresses on the use of troops uh, isn't one of them. So more fighting words, John, from Ilya. He's said you're wrong about Madison and Hamilton, and also says that if, as you can see, Congress can regulate taxes, why can't it regulate timing? Why don't you take one beat per spot? I meant to say they can, they can try to regulate tactics and strategy, but I think the president has the upper hand. Also, I'd say that uh, I don't think Madison and Hamilton, Hamilton made these statements before and during the public ratification of the Constitution. The one big public debate about this was, I think, the one in Virginia. But let me, let me just point to a text in the Constitution, because Ilya you know, started us with the the, um, the, the regulating the, the government regulation of the uh, governing and regulating the armed forces clause. So uh, according to his approach, and I think the approach of uh, many scholars, uh, you know, Congress has to give its permission first before the president can then use the armed forces as the head general once Congress has, in a sense, activated them. Well, if that were the case, take a look at Article One, Section 10 of the Constitution. Now, this regulates the ability of states to make war. Right, here's what the clause says. It says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Now, I would put to you, this is exactly, and this is in the text of the Constitution. We don't have to get into what the framers uh, were saying in different debates and so on at the time. This is exactly the system that others who support Congress's war powers here would be in favor of, right? It just substitute the word president for state. It would say Congress has to give its consent. Presidents can't engage in war. And they even this provision even has the exceptions that most people think uh, on the other side ought to exist. If there's a, a sudden attack or there's even imminent danger, then uh, most people agree that the president should be able to act first if without Congress's permission. Now, if the framers really intended the system uh, that uh, some describe here, where Congress has to turn this key on the missile launcher first, and, and then the president can act second. Why don't they use this exact text, which they already have written elsewhere in the Constitution, so they knew how to write it? They're not, they weren't stupid people. They knew how. They could just copy this and put it right. Instead, I would say what the framers did is they gave the president a set of powers, the executive power, not just the commander in chief power, but the executive power. And they gave Congress power over regulating the troops and funding. And I really think funding, especially then, was the primary power because we had no standing military. And if you had no standing military, the president couldn't ever wage war until Congress built the military first. And they expected the president and Congress to struggle and fight. And I think that's the real meaning of what Madison was saying in Virginia. And it's consistent, I think, with the separation of powers they constructed, not just here, but in other areas where they armed each of the branches and expected them to struggle 
for primacy in policy. And we've had periods in our history where Congress has been predominant and periods we're living right now through one where presidents have been dominant, but the Constitution uh, it, it created that arena for the president and Congress to fight each other, and that's the way I think they expected wars to be checked. Okay, we've had a good debate about the original understanding of war power. Now let's get into the details of the Obama administration's arguments. Ilya, you've criticized the administration for invoking the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, which gives the president the authority to use necessary and appropriate force against nations who aided the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The administration interprets this to cover al-Qaeda, but as you and Ben Wittes and others have noted, that's not enough to cover ISIL or ISIS because al-Qaeda and ISIL are enemies, not allies. Tell us more about your skepticism about the invocation of the post-9-11 resolution, as well as your skepticism about its invocation of a more recent uh, resolution passed by Congress, uh, which uh, the administration is invoking as well. Uh, Yeah, so I think there's two aspects of this. One is a sort of a narrow textual point about the 2001 AUMF, uh, and the other is sort of the broader implications of the very loose model of interpretation that the administration has put forward here. The narrow implication is that, as Bruce Ackerman and others have pointed out, uh, the 2001 AUMF was deliberately drafted to be limited to authorizing force against those organizations that, as you put it, the president determined authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th. President Bush had actually asked for a broader authorization to be able to use force against uh, terrorist threats to the United States more generally, but Congress deliberately denied him that broader authorization. So in effect, it denied him almost the exact same uh, power that the president is trying to invoke uh, today. Uh, secondly, yes, uh, it, 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 secondly, it doesn't make much sense to interpret this language as covering an organization that did not even exist in 2001 and that today is actually not only hostile to al-Qaeda, but in many cases actually engaged in fighting against them. Uh, it is true, uh, as John undoubtedly point out, that ISIS includes some people who are formerly allied with al-Qaeda or even members of it, uh, but it also includes many thousands who are never in any meaningful sense members of al-Qaeda. If you say that an authorization to use a military force against one organization means that you're also authorized to wage war against any other organization that has even a few common members or has aided that first organization in the past, then any authorization for the use of force against any hostile group uh, in today's world would essentially give the president the blank check to use force against an enormous range of other groups given the interconnection of groups governments and other potential adversaries of the U.S. in the modern world. For example, during the Cold War, it would have meant that an authorization to use force against one communist state might well mean being able to use force against all the other communist states. During World War II, we could have said, well, uh, the president had the power to invade Spain in 1945 because earlier in the war, Spain had aided the Nazis in various ways, including even providing some troops. So it would essentially turn at least a somewhat reasonably limited AUMF into a boundless power to initiate wars against all kinds of nations and organizations. Uh, And so I think in addition to the technical question of statutory interpretation, there is this broader danger uh, that we need to watch out for. John, are you persuaded by President Obama's statutory arguments about the authorization of the use of force resolution 
And more broadly, uh, what's your response to the charge of uh, Bruce Ackerman in the New York Times that Obama's tactics mark, quote, the decisive break in the American constitutional tradition? Nothing attempted by his president, George W. Bush, remotely compares an imperial hubris, end quote. Uh, you worked for uh, President Bush. Do you agree with Professor Ackerman that President Obama is making bolder claims than his predecessor? I don't think so. I think uh, Professor Ackerman has let his uh, rhetoric get away with him. I'm not sure why he thinks that this is some kind of break from previous uh, presidents. And, uh, you know, if, if it's something about uh, reading the 2001 AUMF, then there's a legitimate debate to be had. But, he, you know, under Professor Ackerman's view and others, like Professor Soman, if uh, one wants congressional authorization, then here's a form of congressional authorization. The question is whether ISIS fits within it. And I, I'm not sure. I think it's a factual question. It depends on how closely linked the ISIS group or ISIL group is to Al-Qaeda. Right? Al-Qaeda is an organization that carried out the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001. Those, that is the definition of the groups that the president is authorized under the statute to use force against. So I think that's actually even a factual question. I think if the Obama administration wants to rely on the 2001 AUMF, they should come forward in public with uh, you know, non-classified information or go to Congress in closed hearing and classify, when use classified information to prove why they think ISIS is connected sufficiently with the original Al-Qaeda group. Now, I don't, I don't know. I, you know it's, uh, and I don't think, uh, I think there are media reports going both ways. Some say it was part of Al-Qaeda at one point, and then some, as Professor Summer just now, there are reports saying that they're fighting right now. Uh, but the, I think it's incumbent on the administration to go forward and explain that. But I don't think it's uh, this kind of parade of horribles or slippery slope that Professor Soman just listed, because the reason why you can make the link to groups that are not named in the statute, right? He's saying, well, if we're in World War II, does that mean we could go to war with Spain? I think that's different. Because I think in this case, the statute is written. And, and I, you know, I was one of the lawyers in the government at the time who helped write the statute. The statute as written explicitly calls for the use of force against groups that are linked to the original fighting group. So it says not just those organizations that are planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terror act, terrorist acts, but also organizations present harbored those organizations or people. So the, the statute itself, when Congress wrote it, intended it to go one step further beyond just the people, the hijackers. And, I, and I'll say going back to those days, this is, you know, 13 years ago, but Congress and the executive branch, we both wanted the authorization to be broad in this way because at that time, if you go back, this is a statute passed on September 18th, 2001, we couldn't predict exactly how the 9-11 tax had occurred. Plus, we wanted to give the president the ability to strike at groups in the future uh, because Al-Qaeda often evolved metamorphoses, change, would change labels and structures, and we didn't want, for example, Al-Qaeda just to rename itself and say, oh, now we're called ISIL or something. You know, we, there has to be some flexibility in the people who are fighting the war to keep following that group and all the groups allied with them. Ilya, uh, Jack Goldsmith, uh, who also served in the Bush administration, uh, it's what he calls the larger irony that President Obama claimed to repeal the Bush-era unilateralism and said 
I look forward to engaging Congress and the American people in efforts to refine and ultimately repeal, end quote, the 2000 laws mandate. Uh, do you agree with Goldsmith that uh, President Obama is more unilateral than President Bush? And more broadly, how is it possible that this former constitutional law professor who was so critical of President Bush's foreign policy unilateralism has, in the eyes of some critics, seemed to surpass it? Uh, so whether Obama is generally more unilateralist than Bush is a complex question. I do think he clearly is more unilateralist than Bush on the issue we're talking about right now with respect to the initiation of war. He was in Libya. He is, I think, again, in this case, Bush, you know, you can argue about a lot of other things that he did, uh, but he did get uh, advanced congressional authorization for uh, the post-September 11th intervention and the, also for the Iraq one. In the case of September 11th, I'm not even sure necessarily he needed that authorization to invade Afghanistan because there had been a prior large-scale attack on the U.S. and almost everyone agrees that the president can defend against an attack that has actually already happened. On the question of the 2001 AUMF again for a moment, I think you already see a slippage even in John's argument as well as in the administration because notice that John wants to stretch the words harbored uh, or aided to also mean linked to al-Qaeda. And harbored and aided are relatively narrowing terms. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if those can encompass anything that is in some way linked to al-Qaeda, well, that's almost every radical Islamist group anywhere in the world probably has some connection to al-Qaeda of some sort, at least in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And a good many national governments probably uh, have some connection, direct or indirect, as well. Uh, so I think there is a danger to in using these with this language very loosely, and I think that's why we should instead use ordinary standard tools of statutory interpretation, which is that when you have a list of terms uh, such as aided, harbored, uh, and so forth, uh, then that means that terms that are not on the list are meant to be excluded. Uh, that is terms such as linked or connected uh, or the like. Uh, that's pretty standard garden variety statutory interpretation, but I think it's especially important in a case like this where if we go the other way, uh, if we start getting loose with it, then you do give the president this enormous power to attack an enormous range of groups uh, on his own initiative without getting congressional authorization. John, please respond to those points if you will, and then uh, tell us more broadly based on your experience, you know, regardless of whether there is a, at least a plausible legal argument uh, to be made, on President Obama's uh, behalf in terms of the statutory interpretation, would it be wise pragmatically to go to Congress rather than repeatedly asserting the power to ignore it? Well, first, I think that uh, we haven't mentioned it, but I actually think that better authorization from Congress was the 2002 Iraq resolution, which, uh, you know, before, but before it passed to the, and on the 2001 AUMF, I think that, uh, you know, despite um, Professor Soman's use of, uh, I think, these black letter canons about how you read ambiguous statutes, I think what was undeniable at the time was that Congress, and again, someone who's participated in it, Congress wanted to give the president as much authority as possible to pursue the people who had carried out the 9-11 attacks and the organization behind them. And so any group, I think, that is part of al-Qaeda, even if they were not born then, right? I mean, we might have people who are like three or four years old at that time who are now al-Qaeda soldiers. I don't think that those people have some kind of battlefield immunity under because they can't be 
because they were not historically present and involved with al-Qaeda at that time. If al-Qaeda grows, for example, after 9-11, starts creating all kinds of different franchises around the world, which it has um, in places like Yemen and Sudan, I think that this authorization, as is written, allows you to pursue them. That's why, to me, it's important, is this group part of al-Qaeda or not? Did the head of ISIL take an oath of allegiance to the leader of al-Qaeda. I think that's the traditional uh, test that's been used uh, by both them and us about whether groups part of al-Qaeda. And then if there's been a break, let's, you know, let's see the evidence of it. But turning then to the AUMF in 2002, you know, the, the AUMF in 2002, which was written before the Iraq War, was not just limited to overthrowing Saddam Hussein. The resolution had authorized the president to use force against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. And so I think that would legitimately include groups that are in the territory of Iraq who are posing a threat against us. And I think this was the authorization uh, for everything that the United States did in Iraq between overthrowing Hussein and when it left, uh, and turning the, the entire reconstruction period of Iraq, uh, fighting with al-Qaeda groups in Iraq and fighting with uh, various tribes that were resisting uh, the United States presence there. Turning to your second question, uh, Jeff, I do think, personally, I think that the president should seek authorization when he can and when it doesn't hurt the uh, security of the operation. And in this case, he's going to have to, in a sense, because he needs the money to conduct this campaign. This campaign is going to take, as I think President Obama said, it may take years. It's going to take uh, not just airstrikes, but military supplies and I think we're hearing testimony even today on the Hill that it might ultimately require troops and advisors. We already have a thousand troops on the ground protecting U.S. assets. I, I imagine that we have uh, U.S. special forces and paramilitary covert units providing targeting and gathering intelligence on targets. And so I think when you have that come involved, Congress has to pay for it. The president doesn't have the funds available to do that on his own. And so I think the president should go to Congress. And also, one last point. If the president really does want to rely on allies and we need to have a coalition, after what's been happening this summer with the United States, Russia, and Ukraine, where we did not live up to our promise to Ukraine to protect its independence, I would be very leery if I were an ally of joining up with the coalition unless they had some real commitment that the United States is not going to pull out. And one way I think President Obama can actually help the credibility of the United States that we're going to live up to our promises to go after ISIS and not pull out, or at least if Congress is on the record too, saying that it will fully uh, support the intervention. And so I think, you know, for this, this domestic and international reason, it makes some sense to go for it. And I say I gave the same price in the Bush administration, even though I thought the president did not have, did not need Congress's permission to respond to the 9/11 attacks or to attack Saddam Hussein, I thought since we had the time, it was a good idea to get Congress, uh, Congress's support anyway, and that's what President Bush did. Ilya, why do you think President Obama is not going to Congress, given the fact that he's a close student of the Bush administration's ultimate decision to do so, and why instead is he resorting to legalisms about uh, Libya not amounting to hostilities under the War Powers Resolution, or the fact that we don't have boots on the ground against ISIL not qualifying as hostilities either. Is, is, he, is he making a pragmatic as well as a constitutional error? Um, I agree it's a pragmatic error with John. That's one of the few things in this discussion that we do agree on. Many other people have said the same thing, including Jack Goldsmith and also various people on the left. 
uh, as to why he's not doing it. One possible explanation is the standard one, like a lot of presidents before him, he wants to grab as much power as possible. Secondly, many of the administration were unhappy with the experience last year when he went to try to get permission for the Syria strike, and you know he had to pull back from that because Congress very likely was not going to give permission. I think this situation is different. There's a much broader consensus about ISIS than there ever was about Syria, so he probably would get the authorization. Finally, you know, maybe some people in administration actually do believe these arguments that they're making, just like, you know, I think John sincerely believes the arguments. Uh, I do lastly want to briefly con comment on the 2002 AUMF, because I think the argument there has some of the same problems as with 2001. The 2002 AUMF does, in fact, say that the president can take action against the, quote, continuing threat from Iraq, but it's important to emphasize the continuing there, i.e., it must be some continuity with the same threat against which we invaded, i.e., the threat posed by Saddam Hussein and his regime. If you look at all the surrounding language in that resolution, uh, sorry, not AUMF, it discusses uh, the real and supposed threats created by Saddam Hussein, his weapons of mass destruction program, his violations of the 1991 uh, 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 agreement that ended that conflict, and so forth. So when you read it in that context, continuing threat does not mean any threat of any kind that might occur on the territory of Iraq. Moreover, uh, Obama himself had announced in 2011 that this conflict is over. He withdrew virtually all U.S. forces with the exception of a tiny number uh, of advisors. So when the president withdraws his troops, announces that the conflict is over, I think uh, it's a grave error to say, well, he can then uh, roll back the clock and go back to uh, the resolution that uh, authorized the initiation of that same conflict. And it's similarly a serious error to interpret continuing threat as saying any threat that has any connection of any kind to Iraq, because of course all kinds of countries and groups have some connection direct or indirect with Iraq. So we're right back to that same problem that I mentioned with the 2001 AUMF, that if you go down this route, it's almost a blank check for initiating uh, all kinds of wars. All right, it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Uh, John, do you think that President Obama is acting within his constitutional powers to attack ISIL overseas without some form of congressional approval? Uh, yes, I do, and I think it's based on his powers as president under the Commander-in-Chief Clause and as uh, the executive power, uh, and under the Executive Power Clause. And I think it builds on uh, an extensive history of presidents using force. And I think the check is not the declare war clause, actually, which we didn't talk about, or the power to regulate and govern the armed forces, but the check is on co by Congress's funding power, which it can easily use. In fact, the only thing it has to do is not pass anything, and military operations will come to a pretty quick halt. And Ilya, last word to you. Do you think President Obama would be acting within his constitutional powers if he attacked ISIL without congressional authorization? No. Uh, the Constitution assigns to Congress, not to the President, the power to initiate war. In addition, uh, the Constitution also gives Congress the power to regulate the land and naval forces, which Congress here has exercised with the War Powers Act. Uh, moreover, I don't think it's a sufficient check to say, well, once the war has started, if they don't like it, they can defund it, because that, in effect, creates a very serious bind. 
because in many cases, once you enter a bad war, even if you pull out quickly, uh, you have still caused yourself and others significant harm uh, that could have been avoided if you didn't go into it uh, in the first place. Uh, as John correctly pointed out earlier, if we are going to enter into a major conflict, it makes good sense for the president to get congressional approval ahead of time uh, because that sends a signal of commitment. It also leads the other politicians and uh, hopefully the general public as well to be committed to uh, carrying the conflict to a successful conclusion. Uh, and this is such a good pragmatic idea uh, that the Founding Fathers actually built it into the Constitution. Uh, they realized that it's dangerous to give any one man the power to initiate war on his own, uh, and they in fact did not give any one man that power. They instead said that there has to be a broader deliberative process that goes through Congress. Uh, I, that doesn't mean that we should never wage war. I in fact agree that it's a good idea to uh, try to curb ISIS here, but it should be done in the proper constitutional way that is not only legally right, but it's also the best way to maximize our chances of actually succeeding in this operation. Thank you, Ilya Sonnen and John Yu, for a substantive and enlightening discussion of the scope of the president's war power. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.